Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside, inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hello, I'm here today with my friend Ray Segrin. Hello, Ray. Oh, well, hey, Jim. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'll tell you, it is such a pleasure to uh, have you here for our conversation today. And uh, Ray, I know a little bit about you, and we'll get into how we met yeah. uh, 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 later. But one of the fascinating things about you is uh, that I know that you were a, a DJ in your past life. Yes. And so I want to call on you. I've got a couple buttons here on, on my uh, uh, podcast uh uh, technology that I've never got to use, so I want to use those now, and I want to introduce you as Ray the DJ to our audience. So give us an old opening, and here we go. You want me to go back and hello? All right, good good morning, Fresno. It's the Breakfast Flakes here on KZAC. You got Ray and Jim, Jim and Ray, seven fifty three in the morning, heading down. Looking at traffic now. We send it over to to jump in, Jim. <laughs> All right, Jim, that's Thank where you, you Ray. that's where you would give the the traffic and weather together on the nines. <laughs> traffic, okay, <yeah. laughs> on uh, do you like that we have a we have a radio show together? It's the breakfast flakes. <laughs> what do you think? Because oh, it's breakfast time. It. It's breakfast time. We just had you know, uh, uh, I'm here at your house. Uh, I'm in your podcast studio here. Had a nice uh, bowl of um, uh, of some you frosted, frosted mini wheats. Yeah, right. Yes, uh, and some coffee, and I'm ready to go, man. Let's do this thing. Ah, absolutely. Anyway, that was that was great. Got to hear a little bit of uh, a little bit of Ray in the morning. All Indeed, right. I, I, a ray I, of sunshine. Well, so, did you have a call? Did you have a, a so nickname? I did. So during uh, um, so I did news, and I also did uh, alternative rock and rock radio a lot of the time. And for that, I was Ray Dog. Ray Dog. I, I was like Ray Dog. That. Yeah, <laughs> that you can't. You can be a Ray Dog in your twenties, and as you go into your thirties, it's less. And, and you know, actually, it was suggested to me that we should do this this kind of reunion thing for a station back in Austin. And it's like it'll be weird in my fifties to now be Ray. It just doesn't. I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it lands the same way. But uh, radio was a big part of my life. You know, I went to the University of Texas straight out of Georgetown High School. I was supposed to be a lawyer. Okay, really. I was on the debate team in high school, but then I got to UT and I like music. I was playing guitar, got in a band. Then I'm working at the club. Now I'm on the radio. And by that point, it was, you know, uh, so I ended up in the communication school. For a minute, I flirted with filmmaking, and I, that's still a, a love of mine. I have an IMDb page for films that I help produce. So uh, working on Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I've been a, either a producer, producer, an associate producer, an executive producer on three feature-length uh, independent films. So that's a little fun thing I do on the side. and uh, But radio was what I did from 18, 19, 20 up until, I guess, 34, 5, 6 was when I um, I had left town. I was working in radio in Tulsa, um, and I had an entrepreneurial seizure, decided to start an independent newspaper there that was loosely patterned on the Austin Chronicle paper back in Austin. And then 9-11 happened. So I had to go back home with my tail between my legs. And it was wow. just a couple years after that that I ended up in advertising, started my agency in 06. So that's what I've done full-time to feed the family and put the kids through college and such uh, since uh, 2004, 5, 6. All right. You know, I, I, years. I, I always find it fascinating when 
when I talk to uh, uh, men of a certain age or people yes. of a certain age, people of our age, mm-hmm. uh, and yes, it's always fascinating to see how they got to where they are. Because how, how did we get here, Jim? How, how did, did we, we get? How here? did we get here? So <laughs> speaking about that, well, yeah. uh, t- tell everyone how how we met, what our what what the yeah the bringing together of, of us. So there is a fantastic organization that you and I are are passionate fans and participants in called Rapport Leadership International. It is based in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, but now classes are being taught all over North America. And Jim and I are both members of an elite group of rapport master graduates called the warrior circle yeah and that's, that's right. how we met that's right that's that's how we met and and we're a group that we we hold each other accountable we get together we springboard ideas uh and and it's it's about it's about personal growth it's about individual growth it's about always giving back uh, somehow to the community sure. uh, and, and with each other. So anyway, th- it has been a wonderful uh, journey for me. Uh, I, I, I describe it, it's uh, a mastermind meets a co-ed fraternity of men and women who are very much into accountability and personal growth, but there's also a public service component. in. Yes. Uh, so there's just a lot going on. It's just a really neat group. Yes. Uh, life-changing for me to be part of the Warrior Circle. Yes. And, not the least of which, Jim, was uh, uh, the way our paths crossed um, just barely a year ago when I was here for the golf tournament last year. You, right. you and I had only talked on the phone before then. That's right. But obviously, um, uh, your journey with Zach and my journey with not just my daughters, but my entire family, obviously, you and I were uh, simpatico kindred spirits from the get-go. and um, Right. Right. So back here for another golf tournament and, uh, and uh, you know, and uh, now happy to be uh, serving on your, uh, your board. Right, right. And, and, and let me say one of the, I think one of the uh, fantastic things about our group is about the Warrior Circle, because we've all uh, participated through the classes of rapport, we, we all come in with a common language. We come in with, a, with a somewhat of a common mindset about personal growth, about giving. But more importantly, there is a vulnerability in our relationships that allow us to share at a level that that maybe you only do with your best friend from high school or your dorm sure. roommate from college, right? Or someone that you've known for years on the golf course. And we're able to get to that place, I think, much quicker and much deeper because I know the shares that I've had and that I've heard have been at that level. And what's interesting for me, as much as we're coming in with a common mindset and a shared experience and some common motivations, you couldn't assemble a more different group of people. Like, uh, you know, uh, my... Um, you know, my um, accountability uh, group, which is me and Johnny Mandal and Mark Mahoney. I mean, so here's ad agency filmmaker radio guy in the accountability group with a cowboy and a guy and, and Mahoney's, you know, uh, you know, he's a he's a elite athlete, but also owns a motorsports uh, outfit and a ocean spray cranberry farmer. So I yeah. mean, you really couldn't get, you right, know, right. A, a, a more eclectic group of people Um that are bound by that sort of commonality. Right. I think it's awesome. Right. No, it is. That's, that's, uh, it is. It's, it's been tremendous. And 
I don't want to spend all day talking about the group, but it is so exciting. My reading level has went off the hook since since I joined the group a little over a year ago. I think I want to say last year I read over sixty books. I'm on number twenty four this year already, and many of those books are. And and I, I say that because as I'm talking now, that's what's in my mind because I'm reading yeah. every day. So I'm. It's not just my ideas, but there's other ideas that are shaping me and shaping my thought processes. And a lot of those, and those books are primarily, they're, they're either motivational books, they're books that are designed to help uh, create a stronger awareness, right, right of, of what we were at. We were just at a meeting where we talked about, about being present, right, and how important that was. The difference, and I mean, these topics are flying through my mind, the difference in accountability and expectations and how that plays out in our lives. Right. I mean, so there's just all of this that comes on. And whenever I'm around someone from our group, all of those ideas are just are just front and center. Right. And so they're they're present for us all the time. So I have the pleasure this weekend uh, at the golf tournament of being able to hang out with uh, my favorite people in the world and just get inspired again. You know, um, one of my core beliefs is that we all have things to teach one another. And we've all got things to learn. And I know inside the warrior circle, this this little microcosm of so many people with so many different levels of experience, I know that I have a lot to learn from other people and I know I have a lot to teach people as well. So it's very, um, I guess, uh, symbiotic is a good word that comes to mind for that. It's just yeah, a lot of people that are all willing to give. And when you have a group of people, that dynamic who are willing to give and help others and are willing to make themselves vulnerable, that's where some really magical things can happen. Well, and and I can tell you the encouragement that I got in joining, because I was, as I know, I'm the only one in the group who, you know, who's not an entrepreneur or wasn't when I began. I don't have a business that's traded on the stock exchange, right? Well, I don't my, ha- my business is not <laughs> traded on the stock exchange, buddy. <laughs> But but I, bar- I barely got one and a half employees right now. But 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 there's guys in the group and women in the group with hundreds of employees of, empl- of employees, sure. right? So I was wondering how I was going to fit, same right in, in into this group. And what you just said is that you realize now, as I do, I have so much to offer to this group as well as so much that I get to gain. Sure, I, the, the term is imposter syndrome, and I have it. Uh, on any given day, my imposter syndrome will will creep up for all the amazing things I've got to do and be part of through the years. On any given day, my brain can go haywire, and uh, and it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah. So um, well, and and I think it's it's that exactly that keeps us from giving in some of our other relationships. Yeah. Uh, here's the self talk that says. You know what? I've I've made these mistakes, and so now I'm thinking about my work in the recovery community, and, and around people. You know, it would be hypocritical for me to talk about this topic because you know, back when I was younger, I did this, or uh, you, you know, my life is certainly less than perfect. I really can't call anybody out on 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 things that they could do to to improve. And and the the fact is that. When we love people, when we care about people, and we don't share that part of our lives, we're robbing them of that opportunity to, to know us. Yes. So it's not just in our group, but I'm learning that in our group, but it's in all my relationships. 
I need to have that level of honesty and vulnerability to give to give to others. And then they can do with that what they will, right? Right? But that's not about them. It's about what I'm going to give. It's about what I'm going to do. It's about taking that opportunity today to reach out to someone, right, that where, where I feel that there may be a need or there may be something there, or it may be, be something that I need. How about if I'm just vulnerable with you today, Ray, and I tell you that, you know what, dude, I need some support today. I'm, I'm just, I'm feeling lousy, and, and I break that up. I'm giving you the opportunity, right? I don't want to rob mm-hmm. you of that opportunity to, to give to me. I like that openness. I'm, I'm learning that in our group, and I want to carry that into all the other relationships in my life. Yeah. I know you're going to ask me a little bit about my family, and I will just say, since we're here now, that's not the environment that I grew up in. Men in my family never taught me or showed me that that was okay. What they told me and showed me was that starting when I was 13, I could go get a beer out of the fridge if I wanted one. And um, when you juxtapose that against a larger view of American history, American culture, I don't think the United States of America and I don't I don't wouldn't speak past that but my experience has been that our educational systems our family structure socially I don't think we're built strong and sturdy and deep to instill emotional intelligence hmm. in our men hmm. it's hard for me to argue against that you know <laughs> yeah. so those of us that through the years get on a trajectory of self-improvement and growth, I believe, is a, frankly, pretty small subset of society. That's not, I I would not want to overgeneralize, but that's been my experience and sort of my observation and my opinion about it. So those of us that do get on that path, I believe it's a wonderful gift. And I'm lucky to have, through my own recovery, um, through therapy, uh, and through self-improvement to be able to foster, I hopefully would, would see as a greater sense of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, and key in that is the willingness to be vulnerable, which doesn't come easy to men, especially men like me who uh, that imposter syndrome and that insecurity can flare up and uh, when that happens, it uh, it makes me want to retreat and isolate, lest I expose myself to be rejected. Mm-hmm. Well, Ray, let's continue this line of conversation. We got deep, we got deep quick, Jim. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, y- you know, again, and and what a. I've got I've I've got stand up comedy routine that we could yeah. also do it here if you want, Jim. If you want to lighten it up <laughs> to, a little bit, we to, do that. To, you know? Just to tell me, let's go back into your history. Then go ahead and share with yeah. me about. I mean, you just hit on thirteen, and again, you know, yeah. Hey, this is how you this is how you're a man. But how how did yeah. that develop just into your own? Give me sure. your history and sure, your sure, own sure. path. Yeah, so I, so my parents uh, um, uh, ended up divorcing when I was uh, in fourth grade, and by fifth grade, I was starting the fifth grade year. With uh, uh, a stepdad, my mom was pregnant. I had an older stepbrother, and uh, that was ten or twelve. And so it was shortly there, is back and forth with my dad, who drank a lot. 
Uh, and so when I was over at my dad's house by about 13, 14, uh, I was drinking kind of on the regular. And then in high wow. school, um, like we did in Georgetown High School in Texas, where I grew up, uh, those of us that listened to rock and roll music. So there were, th- there were three groups in, uh, in Georgetown High School. There were the rockers, there were the jocks, and the kickers. Those were the three groups. Now, I was, what's, a, what's a kicker? A country, you know, a more of a country farm kind of guy. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. We had different. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, we call those the... kickers. <laughs> I, I get it now. <laughs> I know what you're kicking. <laughs> you know what they're kicking, right? So, uh, so, but that's when you know, um, for me, um, my my friend group, there was always alcohol around. So, you know, uh, in my family, you know, uh, I was dr- I was drinking by the time I was 14. You know, by 15, I had a driver's license, and I could drive to my dad's house and drink and still drive my car back to my mom's, and he didn't have a problem with that. And by 16, 17, I could take a couple 12-packs with me. Mm. And, you know, ex- started to experiment with some drugs then. And by the time I was off at UT, that was now, you know, I was living in a dorm with no adult supervision. They call it a co-op, all right? Mm. And I think that's when... Things continued to, you know, do that. But, you know, what's interesting, Jim, is that uh, there weren't any real heavy consequences like so many people. There was no wrecked car. There was never went to jail. Never manifested in, like, really bad behavior or anything abusive or anything like that. Uh, Right, In fact, I would look around where somebody would wreck their car or have these horrible dysfunctional breakups or whatever. And I'd be like, what's wrong with you people? Why can't you, There's, I forget where it's from, but they, but there was a thing. Why can't you hold your smoke? You know, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, say back yeah. from a movie, I think, but, but why, you know, I would look around, but why couldn't people maintain? Because as addicts go, I was a very high functioning addict. Right. And I never lost a job and I didn't leave the house or any of that. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's uh well, I just, I just think of that. Uh, I think of that history and what that's, like growing up and in, in that kind of dysfunction when you talk, and I just want to ref- reflect briefly when, um, when your parents split. So now you have a new family going back and forth, your fifth grade, sixth grade, then through high school. Did you recognize any of that as traumatic at that point? No, I don't think I was really aware of, the degree to which so so the thing I left out is in third and fourth grade so we we'd moved from Austin mm-hmm. uh, my little brother and me and my mom and dad to live with my granddad after my grandma passed away and that's okay. when my dad was driving forty minutes to work and he was you know he would he was a dump truck driver and he'd start drinking beer and drive that dump truck all day right and um, and then my mom started I mean. Her hairdresser was my future stepdad. Okay. So all of that went down there, and, and my brother and I were largely left to our own devices. Yeah. What so could go wrong? third and fourth grade there was, <laughs> you know, that, that was when I first started acting out a little bit, uh, vandalism, shoplifting, things like that um, was then. Um, but I didn't realize until much, much later the degree to which when you get in therapy and get in recovery, it gives us an opportunity to dig up those, th- those traumatic experiences, childhood wounds and sure. figure out what we're going to do with them. There. there. So that answers my question. So, yeah. so now you're aware of, so I, I, I know that what, what hit me when you said that is that so often when you're a child and there's trauma and everyone's trauma is at a different level. 
And, and, and it's possible that some people have no trauma at all. I mean, you know, good for them, right, that they don't experience that. But when you're a child, my experience is that's just what our normal is. So, so the dysfunction in my family that I grew up with was my normal. That's just my family. Yeah. I didn't know it was really any different until I got into college and out of college. I thought, wow, everyone doesn't didn't have the same kind of luggage carrying around that I was carrying around. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, then later when we're fortunate enough to, to get on a, a journey of self-improvement and whether it's, it's therapy or whatever level, then all of a sudden you start to see like, Oh my gosh, just me surviving was huge. Yeah. You know, how, however it was that I, that I had to do it. So, so as I, as I listen to that and as people hear the stories that come across in my podcast, I want people to realize that those of us that have been touched by addiction in some way or another, our lives are not always that different than anyone else's. Mm. Right. And it's just there. And you may see yourself in some of these, you may wonder, well, you know what? Maybe that's why at 13 Ray was picking up a beer because it just made him feel a little normal or he just didn't feel as shitty as he did. If he didn't, if he didn't have it, you know, when right. everything was happening around, or that's just the norm of what happens in this household. Someone comes in from work, they grab a beer because yeah. that's what, that's what dad does all the time. Right. So, so those are, uh, again, in normalizing that experience and understanding, I think there's a great, there's a great part, the more that we talk about that, mm-hmm. our ability to, to lessen the stigma that surrounds substance use disorder sure. and different addictive qualities is something that becomes just more aware. Yeah. So I mentioned, Jim, that uh, when there had not yet, when I had not yet reached a point where my quote-unquote partying was having real ramifications, before I got there, it was pretty easy-peasy. It was mostly fun. Uh, What changed in my life was I had started my advertising career in 2004, and it was 2005 when I was to the point where I was able to get on a plane with clients all across the U.S. and Canada, and we would do what we call an uncovery. So you fly in, you spend a little time with the client, you spend a day deconstructing what's going on, you fly home and build the, the, the plan. And if they like me and they like the plan, then they'll, they'll give me more money on the monthly basis to, to be their guy, right? So in in 2005, the client in question was in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is, of course, not far from Green Bay. And it's like, if I'm going to Green Bay, Appleton area in the middle of winter, there better be a football game. There you go. I hear they have some. I hear they have some. Sure enough, they did. And the the game in question, uh, if you're a football fan, was um, it was Packers versus Vikings wild card game at Lambeau. Oh, this wow. is the game where Randy Moss famously mooned the Lambeau crowd after his second touchdown where the Vikings <laughs> beat the Packers. But on that day, Jim, this guy who started drinking beers, you know, at 13, and now what am I? You know, I'm 40. No, I'm in my late 30s at that point. I would have been in my late 30s at that point because I got clean at 42. So 36, 37, whatever I was. And on that day, I could drink just as good as those cheeseheads. Beer after beer after beer after beer. 
But about 17 beers in, I couldn't walk on the ice as well. And what happened is uh, <laughs> the game was over, and we were going from the third bar to the 17th bar after the game or whatever it was, and my foot accidentally slipped on the curb, and my right arm cratered into the curb, broke my arm, and tore my rotator cuff severely. Ouch. Only inches away from pretty serious head damage, if you want to get to it, because what landed right here, you know, near my shoulder, could have easily just been right Just here. a few inches away, yeah. And from could could have been radically different. But what I did was I got up, ouch, and then we kept drinking. But by 4 in the morning, I was at the Green Bay emergency room. My arm was black. Oh. And I, I don't want to say that was the first time that um, I had uh, taken a pain pill, but that set into motion the first time that a doctor gave me a very large bottle of Vicodin and a very large bottle of OxyContin and said, take lots of these all day, every day while we're figuring out what's, but now that's not actually what he said, but that's what I heard. Right. But right. This is, this is 2004, five, six. So it's, it's, uh, um, it's 2005 and into 2006, which started the a very dark. Right near the beginning. Of, so a uh, lot also is, right in the beginning of, of our, of the opioid crisis that started over on the East Coast. Yeah. so That started in the late 90s. So yeah. you were right in the... So by then, for sure, much has been made about the way that uh, the marketing departments of these pharmaceutical companies uh, gave money to doctors to... Right. Based on... They gave them bonuses and honorariums and trips based on the volume of those kinds of drugs that they prescribed. And I right. so that was that's where I got caught up. I, I don't have a victim mentality about it. But for the purposes of connecting my story to that obviously very, very pressing uh, uh, social issue that we're now dealing with the consequences of, I was in the middle of that uh, in oh, starting in 05. And between 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, it was, uh, it was Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving of 2009, when I uh, made my way into a Narcotics Anonymous meeting and picked up a white key tag. Uh, and since then I have, uh, that's when my, uh, that's when my recovery journey started. I will tell you that I have been, not been to rehab, but, uh, I have been into multiple different, um, 12 step programs and different, uh, recovery approaches, but that's how it started for me was in 2009. And for five years, 05 through 09, every day of those five years for over 1,700 days, I woke up every day for five years either strung out or hungover or dope sick, one of the three. Wow. In a very dark time, yeah. And near the end of that, uh, I was one of two times in my life when I contemplated this seems unmanageable and I just want out. It was one of two times that I flirted with suicidal ideation in my life. The other was earlier on uh, when my business had failed in 2001 and I had to go back to Austin with my tail between, I had to leave Tulsa, Oklahoma, go back to Austin with tail between my legs. And on that, in that instance, um, I got what the stock brokers in 1939 must've felt mm. like to, have really screwed it up and didn't see a way forward. But in this case, they weren't going to let me take my rehab. I couldn't go into rehab with my laptop and keep grinding on my business that I was building. 
So I didn't see a way out. But my brother had had uh, had found a way of recovery. He'd been in and out of prison, and he had years clean. And so he showed me the way. Him and his then girlfriend showed me the way to to wow to find a different way to live. Wow. Well, again, which just just speaks again. Everybody's uh, everybody's path to recovery looks different. Everybody's path once they get there looks, you know, looks different. And I think that's, that's an important, uh, that's an important distinction. I think uh, oftentimes in the recovery community alone, we always hear that there's one way, you know, and usually if, if, if I got sober a certain way, then that's the way that works. Right. And that's what I want to push. And, and, I can tell you from from people that sit in the chair that you're sitting in and different people that I get to interview, there is no two of them that have stories that are exactly the same. And likewise, there's every single one of them have other things that are very much the same. Yeah. And there's there's relation issues where, boy, I relate to that. I see that. Nah, but you know what? That's where we diverge, right? And so everyone's yeah. kind of on their on their on their own uh, on their own path. As far it, as that goes, it's interesting you bring that up. So I can give you my spin on that for sure, Jim. I will say that I'm super grateful for 12 step recovery programs um, for me to get that daily reprieve, to find that new way to live. And I am all about applying these principles in all my affairs for sure. What I also really like about your mission with the Zachary Horton Foundation in breaking the stigma, what I've come to realize is how pervasive that stigmatization hmm. can be. And it's the simple obvious one is addict is a very charged word, and especially the only thing worse than drug addict, I think, in terms of being stigmatized is sex addict which people instantly think pedophile, which that's not what that means at all. Um, right, right. But so this, so addict is a very charged word. There's a lot of, frankly, that stigma comes from what is judgment, and from that comes a lot of shame hmm. for somebody who's struggling with an issue. And I'll tell you a great example. As I was flirting with I, suicidal ideation because – my, there, I had a couple of clients themselves, hard drinking every day, alcohol drinking every damn day. I wouldn't want to call them alcoholics, but I observed the behavior. There was no way somebody who drank hard liquor every day was going to trust their business to a drug addict. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So a little yeah. bit of hypocrisy there, right? Right, right. So, but that's the obvious one. But where I believe there's, an opportunity for compassion and understanding and flexibility and open-mindedness. Lots of times, even in the rooms of recovery, there can be very rigid right. standards that are reinforced socially, whether it's uh, opinions about whether somebody on Suboxone, for example, is clean or not, right? Right. Or whether it's in a in an alcohol-based program, you come in talking about your experience around drugs and you're not made to feel welcomed there. Or in the case of in a 
drug recovery or a drug uh, uh, in, in a, uh, uh, a 12 step around. There's lots of 12 step programs around uh, narcotics and specifics, but to use the word sober in those rooms, depending on who's in the room, you might get corrected in front of the whole room. We don't use the word sober here. Right. And, and, and for somebody to, to connect it to what we said earlier, to show up looking for help, right, and st- dealing with a lot of shame and struggling to make ourselves vulnerable, struggling to not isolate, struggling to put ourselves out there to have a connection, and then to be embarrassed and shot down is why oh a lot goodness. of people won't yeah. come back. Yeah. So, and it's a slippery slope. I know there's a need for consistency, but very often these are difficult people, right? Right. And sometimes it's just heartbreaking to see how mm. that stuff goes mm. down. So when you talk about at the core of what would be destigmatizing, I guess. Is that a word? Destigmatize? It is now. Stig- yeah. Okay. <laughs> so to minimize the stigma is more than just making society more understanding of substance use disorder and addiction and the issues around that. Very often it's the people inside of it, I believe. Right, right. Well, and, and I think just sobriety on its own. I'll give you another great example if I could. I don't mean to sure. interrupt you, but um, the use, there is a whole, there is a whole um, movement of the use of psychedelics and microdosing to deal with trauma that is, I find it to be compelling, even though I've not participated in it. I -hmm. find it to be compelling. There is science that backs it up. But there is a hardcore militant uh, position inside a lot of the fellowships around recovery that if you're doing that, you can't be clean. And so now it's like, it's not what you're doing, but who you are. It's making a judgment about who you are. You can't come in here and say you're clean if you're doing that. Is what is is what that militant uh, stance me. I understand why they come at it, but it creates a stigma. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not going to come mm. down on one side say I don't want to stigmatize the stigmatizers either. Right. Right. But right. I just for me that what's fascinating, what's so interesting about the work that you guys are doing at ZHF, which I'm now pleased to, to uh, uh, and honored to, to help play a role with is the degree to which at least let's have some honest conversations, right? Right. And, 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 I, and, and frankly, that's, that's a place that I want to go in, in the future. And it's challenging. And it's a little, frankly, it's, it's a little scary. So, f- for instance, I know that uh, a couple months ago, you know, we had a, a harm reduction overdose prevention summit where we invited, you know, eight different speakers that were all on the continuum of, of, uh, you know, where they saw harm reduction, how they saw help, you know, being, being delivered all the way at the far end was, was, uh, someone promoting the, you know, the legalization of all drugs and the decriminalization of all drugs. Right. And then, and then others who live their lives in the 12 step rooms that, that really, uh, support, you know, where the, where the final goal has got to be absolute abstinence, right? And I know that that's part of their thought process that's there. 
but but yet in all that there were a whole lot more commonalities of of what we could bring to the community of people suffering from substance use disorder and how we could bring them some peace and how we can make their lives better and that really became the focus and and from people that I talked to that sat through the whole summit and listened to everyone speak it was amazing because what what that did was it introduced a dialogue for them where they could begin to honestly we use the term you know question with curiosity right and they could ask themselves well what is what is this about maybe just because i've always heard something doesn't mean that that means that it's right Mm -hmm. you know sure so maybe i can maybe i can just dig a little deeper and so there was just that level of honesty and so it turned out to be a great it turned out to be a great experience i would love to see that even more in the recovery community and i think much like other hot topics in our world, I think that the chances of that taking place are with younger generations because they're more open mm-hmm. and they haven't made up their minds yet. It only happens with people like us that are older that once we lock on to something, it's harder for us to let, or it's harder for me to let go. I'll speak for myself whenever I get an idea, right? So I work diligently all sure. the time to allow that to expand. Yeah, Question with curiosity, I really like that. And I, I know I've got to meet so many people through the years and every walk of recovery, whether it's from addiction or codependency, or I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, people suffer from different issues that sort of go to the same place in the brain and how it lights up the reward center of the brain and does it become unmanageable, right? But to keep a tight focus on substance use disorder and uh, my personal recovery walk and the people who I've brushed up against is uh, just how personal every journey is. And therefore, mentioned earlier on, I know we've all got things to teach one another. We've all got things to learn, right? So if if I'm open-minded to learn from the recovering drug addict sitting to the left of me who knows darn well they can never take a sip of alcohol ever again. And the person to the right who has found a way forward that allows them to be able to, um, to consume alcohol, then they can each have their own journey and, and I can be okay with both of them. Right. Mm. And therefore, think what often gets lost in the shuffle and I think it's a backdrop of just what's going on in the country is the degree to which we silo off and I don't want to talk politics on your podcast today Jim but you know what I'm talking about it's like we um we we are in a you're either for me or against me type of a yeah, mindset and what's, what's weird is what's different now though is somehow we've gotten to the point where everybody gets their own facts now and that we could go off on a whole tangent on that. Yeah. But so, so what does that mean for substance use disorder recovery, the work of the Zachary Horton Foundation? To me, it's super interesting that if we start at a base premise that we're going to break the stigma of addiction, that's a big, yeah. big, big body of work. And I don't have the answers, but I'm sure glad to be here with you helping ask the questions. Well, thanks, Ray. And again, that's why... Uh, you know, ha- having having you part of the team and and uh, so uh, for people out there listening, Ray is uh, is now one of our board members, and so his uh, his work in uh, 
advertising and his work in businesses, uh, you know, over the years is just providing someone like myself who doesn't have a lot of business experience, you know, just some valuable, uh, just some valuable insights into, into how to grow the foundation, how to develop it. And so I, I appreciate that, but also your experience in recovery brings a certain set of knowledge, you know, that comes to, you know, what we're doing. My, my experiences as a, as the family member, and, and I want to just touch on as I'm cognizant of our time, but, but I want to touch on just briefly your family experience. Cause you've, you've mentioned, you know, uh, above the line from you, below the line from oh, you. Yeah. And, and, and I've always heard ad- addiction is a family disease. It absolutely is. And yeah. I can certainly see how there's some uh, generational, we know that generational trauma uh, continues down and it, and it buries itself in, and embodies itself in the children as it goes yeah. down. And, and I can certainly see that happening with, with addiction as well yeah. as it goes. So just speak briefly about sure. that and then so, we'll wrap things up. I'll tell you. So I mentioned sort of the environment wherein I could be a teenage drinker at my dad's house with, right. without any repercussion, right. but it, and I, I won't go full family genealogy here, but my dad's dad and my, my grandpa, John, on my dad's side, died of unchecked alcoholism, wet brain. Uh, my dad was in a drunk driving farm accident when he was nine. Wow. He was driving drunk. At nine. At nine and rolled the car. And it all, he still had the scar where it almost ripped his ear off and he should have died that day. My, my grandma, who I never met, died in a farm accident. So that, the, the, the backdrop of all that, talk about generational trauma, it's just a lot that goes back. And then, you know, I have, I have three daughters, Jim. They're 26, 20, and seven. There's got to be a story with that last one, but this isn't the podcast for that story. Right. <laughs> But both of my older adult daughters from my marriage um, have their journey that they're on, and I don't feel comfortable getting specific about about their stuff. But what I am comfortable saying is that as somebody who was so desperate, me, somebody was so desperate that they were, that I was on the cusp of seriously contemplating just checking out. Right. And ending this life to have found a new way to live, get that daily reprieve, accumulate a lot of damn clean time to, uh, to then be able to pay that forward and be there for my daughters mm, is, at, yes. is, is, is at once empowering, but it's also incredibly humbling. Now it's, uh, mm. uh and so, Ray, let, let me just let, let, let me say this. We just spoke about about generational trauma. Yeah. We just talked about you spoke about your grandparents and how they had set up a succession of a, a succession of addiction, for lack of a better term. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, you know, you know that. They didn't leave you with oil fields in Texas that you were going to manage, yeah. right? And a huge empire to springboard off of. What they left you with was a family history of stories, starting with 
you know, a, a, a drunken nine-year-old who dies almost, you know, who almost dies in a, in a farm accident. Yeah. And it goes on from, and it goes on from yeah. there until it gets to you. The same way that that obviously affected your life and your story and the, how that has also perhaps affected down your lineage. But, but let's talk about, let's talk about uh, generational success now. Let's talk about, so now Ray's mind has been shifted through, through his recovery process. That's a process that you've now shared with your children. And so the same way that there was trauma that built all the way down to you, now your youngest daughter that's seven, she gets to live this life of these successes, these, this life of pouring positivity of making yourself a better person. Did your dad ever talk about, I mean, you and I the last day have talked a lot about going to the gym and about eating better yeah. and about reading. Was that anything that your dad ever discussed with you or your grandpa ever talked? No. I, I mean, I'm saying that because I know, because that wasn't third generation. They, didn't, right. they weren't concerned about that. Uh-huh. But you are instilling in your youngest daughter today all this positivity that you've come up on since 2009, Right. Yeah. Right. And so now that gets to be her story. Right. Now gets now gets to change. Now, I mean, so it's so easy for me to oftentimes fall into the victim role uh, of, you know, this is all the shit that I grew up with. Right. Have you seen the Tony Robbins movie? On no. Netflix. Uh. Uh-uh. There's a there's a moment in the first five. 10 minutes. The reason I love that movie, I forget what the name of it is, but it's the Tony Robbins documentary on Netflix about his thing that he does in, in Florida. But the first five minutes take you. The thing that I remember being amazing about it was that I was laugh. I laughed out loud and was almost moved to tears in the first five or six. Minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. And here, here's what happens. So spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I don't think it's going to spoil anything. So he goes out into the crowd, and part of his his deal with his big seminars is he'll go one-on-one and ask people what's going on with him. And the first guy, you know, I'll, I'll leave it very general so that people can go watch it themselves, but the gist of it is the first guy is like, yeah, my parents were awful, my parents were awful, and to which Tony Robbins replied, what a gift they gave you to be strong and resilient. And then the second woman, a couple minutes later, was... Um, yeah, my parents spoiled me, and and they never gave me confidence, and they all, they helicoptered, and any to which he goes, oh, your parents loved you too much, so there's always sort of this yin and yang of that, yeah. and in my in my situation, I know that the same upbringing and the same genetic encoding. I don't want to get in the nature nurture thing. I think it's all of it. My personal opinion. Sure. But here's sure. what I know is. It gave it made me strong, it gave me a skill set, and it and there's a lot of positive that came out of what I got from my parents. And while they weren't perfect, I've come to realize they did the best they could with what yes. they were given by yes. their parents. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and and you get to pass on all those positive traits, right? Now, now to your family and the people that that you come in contact with. 
And and so let's. But, but Jim, but let's. Okay, so thank you for thank you for glass half fulling that. But let's be honest. Also, you know, um, my my oldest daughter was thirteen when I was strung out and dope sick and hung over all those days. She was in the house with me all the, those five years, right? Right. And I don't want to put my ex wife's, you know, shit in the street, so to speak. But you know, it's not like. It's not like we were there wasn't a, a a thing going on there with the both of us as well. So, yeah, for sure. So, I hope that um, what I have an opportunity to do is what we would call living amends, and so I can acknowledge that there were times when I wasn't the best parent along the way, but I can do the best I can now with what I have now. Well, and, and, there, and, and because of your past experiences, your ability to impact others and to drive that message, I think, is, is going to carry a different weight. When I, and even, the, and, and it, I might even say a better weight now, right? What a gift, Tony Robbins would say, that you can now so give. I'll give you my spin on that, Jim. You're going to love this. So one of the first meetings that I went to when I was attempting to, and relapse is part of my story, buddy, you know, so attempting to get 30 days and then relapse after I had a year, right? So early on, though, this is even before I decided I was really going to go in and, and get my act together. Guy said, I get down on my knees every day and thank God for what I've been through as an addict. And I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But I get it now because we've all been through stuff, but it gives us an opportunity to learn and grow and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be on the path that I'm on now. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, right? And so, that's that, it, gra- life- that's that gratitude that you're talking about that uh, that I find. Uh, see, and I can tell you, I'm not there yet with my. It, it's hard. It's hard for me to find gratitude in my, sure. in the devastation that I've lived. You've lost so to, much to to, yeah. to this point, but but I can see that that's a path that I could see happening at some point yeah. that, but yeah, I know that I'm just not there. I, I, I'm just not there uh, uh, totally, totally yet, but I'm, I still want to give what I can give. Yeah. And, and, and now in speaking with that, as, as we kind of wrap things up here, Ray, t- talk a little bit about your, so your family history, the path that you've been on, where you're at now with, with your, with your, with your growth and with the insights that you have, how do you see that coming together with the, with the work that we want to do in the found in the foundation? So now you're part of this team. What was it that, that brought you to this team and, 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 and where do you see us growing with the Zachary Horton foundation? There's a lot there, Jim. Uh, so I'll tell you first and foremost, it starts with a human connection between two men named Jim and Ray who just bonded over, what you've been through and what I've been through completely different stories, but you can see how it would be easy for me to want to put my dog in this fight. Right. Right. And it's bigger than just you and Zach and me and my daughters. Uh, It's bigger than your very generous assessment of my business skills as they may be that could bring to bear benefit for the organization or my personal walk. It just felt good. It feels right. Uh, As for specific goals, 
you know, when we were goofing around yesterday hitting golf balls, you know, we had some really good conversations about the foundation is going to grow and be bigger than Jim and Lynn and outlive you guys. So now yes. is the time to start thinking about how do you set that up for success? There's a whole thing in American history called founder syndrome with founders who are a little too control freaky and refuse to let go of anything and don't build a hundred or thousand man and woman army to get this thing going. And it, and whatever they built dies with them. Mm. My highest hope for whatever ways I could be of service to this organization, to you and Lynn, and and to the people that are going to be helped by this wherever it goes. You've got some huge ideas. If if for no other reason than I could share that with you, because I knew it was already in your head when we started talking about it yesterday, that you want... I'm not good on the financial piece in the terms, but it's the, it's the, the ability to create recurring operating revenue every year based on investments. What's the term for that? Endowment. Endowment. Thank you. There you go. There you go. So I don't really have any, any board of director stuff, but I got pretty good business since I got, you know, uh, um, pretty good common sense about, uh, let's be creative and let's keep it common sense. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I've got a lot of, a lot of, business owners who are very successful who've leaned on me for the stuff that that I want the foundation to be able to lean on me at whether it's business advice or or whatever but there's a part that there's other people on the board like Mark Mahoney and you know um you and Lynn yeah we we Melinda, Melinda Kim and it's like yeah. when we get on these board meetings everybody it's, it's like sometimes it's like that's such a great thing that Melinda brought up I would have never have thought of that you know right, and it's right, like so right. so um uh, it's almost like it, it feels like the super friends or the X-Men. Yeah. Like everybody's got their yeah. own superpower yeah. that, that they bring to bear. Uh, and to me, if what I've done with public speaking and give a Ted talk and stuff like that, if, if that's something that helps where we can now have five or 10 people out and it's not just Jim that can be able to go tell the story of the foundation, right, right. but we can have multiple speakers that could go out and tell your story through their story and ultimately, it's the foundation's story that that we'll get out there. That's where we get that leverage. Yeah, that's where we can start to do big things. So, again, Jim, to hit to 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 echo what I said earlier, I don't have any of the answers, but I, I'm just so glad I'm here asking the questions with you. Well, dude, I'm I'm happy that you're part of that conversation for sure. And uh, I I Ray, I love your spirit. Thank you. Um, I love. Your story. I love your vulnerability. I love your 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 willingness to 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 give and to dig in. Uh, that's so important. Uh, I want to just capitalize on the things that Ray just talked about about how he's connecting with our board. Anyone listening to this that wants to be part of what we're doing at the Zachary Horton Foundation that wants to volunteer some time to to go out and and sit at a booth to help train people in Narcan to share the story or to make connections for, for s- some of us to come in and, and share the story uh, with other groups, please, please reach out uh, uh, to our, our website at uh, ZacharyHortonFoundation.org and uh, contact us on that. That would be uh, that would be awesome. I don't until now, I haven't asked for that, for that help enough. 
And I want to put that out there. That is something that, that we need. And that's how we're going to continue to grow and, and, uh, and get the message, the mission of, of breaking the stigma of addiction and get that, get that out there for sure. Ray, as we close today, I want to give, I always give my guests uh, the final shout out. Is there, if you could leave the audience of all the things that we've talked about today, one thought that you want them to carry with them, what would that, what would that thought be? I have benefited in business and in recovery, in education, in life, socially, by people who gave me the gift of their perspective, of their support, of their love. So for me, I'm constantly looking to exercise that gratitude not just practice it but exercise like we're at the gym we're going to exercise that gratitude right and figure out a way to keep it flowing forward because and some days i suck at that when i talk about where how do i show up in family in recovery in business in life as a friend and whatever and on any given day i'm better at it or worse at it than the next day or the day before because i'm not perfect it's that just for today, baby. We're going to do it just for today. Yes. So just for today, man, I'm glad to be here with you in Fresno doing this podcast. Uh, going to get ready to hang with some amazing human beings who are some of my favorite people on the planet. And we're going to dig in on how can we make this thing, specifically ZHF, do what it needs to do. Awesome. Ray, thanks so much for uh, for joining me today. This is great. And uh as always, I'm going to encourage everyone to reach out to someone today. Tell them that you love them. I'm Zach's dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at zacharyhortonfoundation.org.